you might have a, a, a brand in food and beverage, or you might have a brand in apparel, or you might have a brand in healthcare and say like health and wellness. And, but ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to send a message to the world and you're trying to have consumers view what you do in a certain context. So what is that? And, and ultimately it tends to be something that can be described in the relatively few words, right? You're not looking for them to, branding isn't about here are my products. Like branding is about what kind of emotions does what you do evoke from the consumer at the end of the day? You're listening to the Engineer of Finance podcast with Ken Green. Please stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear boring yet important disclosures. Thank you. Hi, this is Ken Green, the host of the Engineer of Finance podcast. I'm excited to have a wonderful guest on the show, Jason Somerville. Now, he has a pretty big resume in bio, but I'm just going to touch on a few things. Definitely a seasoned entrepreneur and investment banking professional with over almost 20 years of experience in capital markets, M&A, strategic planning, business operations, and brand building. And he's a founding partner of GW Partners, formerly known as Global Wired Advisors. Jason, thank you for coming on to this podcast. Thanks for having me, Ken. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, so I love these conversations. Look for where this is going to go. And before we started the show, you were mentioning that a big focus over the last eight years has been helping entrepreneurs and helping them, if I understand this correctly, on the exit strategy of how they can build up their business and sell it. And did I understand that correctly? That's right. Yep. That's where this part of my career in the last few years, again, you know, going on about eight has been focused. I, it was an interesting journey getting to this point, but I love it. I, I definitely want to hit on that and spend a fair amount of time uh, near the, the, the end of the show, just so I know everyone's going to get to hear. The beauty that I like on this is I love mentorship and coaching from those who've been there, who have done it, and they're helping based upon experiences and wisdom as opposed to pontification in theory. And so it's wonderful. The way you started, it looked like when you got into the, as a banking, you became an entrepreneur starting off, if I understand right, as a banking professional. And you started with one of the biggest out there. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention names, but it looks like you started out with Bank of America. Okay, great. So you start with them. And when I say monster, I don't say that in a good way or a bad way. I just say they are huge. And what an incredible amount of experience and economy of scale starting off with Bank of America. When did, how did that, how did you go from your learning years where you're paying to learn to also now you're getting paid to learn coming on board with Bank of America? Yeah, no, I started my career there. You know, I, it was weird. I, I was an athlete growing up. I, I thought, hey, maybe there's a chance I can be a pro baseball player. Found out late in high school that was probably not going to be my path. And so what I started to think about was what else can I do in sports? And I thought long and hard about being a sports agent until I found out that most people go to law school uh, before most sports agents are lawyers. So I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. Maybe I'll be an investment banker. And so I, I'm focused, majored in finance in school and was able to be part of the investment banking analyst class after the year I graduated in Bank of America and spent a few years there in a variety of different capacities and got promoted. And really, it was a great place to start a career in business, start a career in finance. I don't know that there's a much better training ground 
and kind of trial by fire boot camp than a large investment bank uh, analyst and associate type role where you're working 100 hours a week, you're working for the biggest companies in the world. It's exciting. It's fascinating. It's exhausting. It's all the above and crazy. And the stories you hear about that type of world are mostly true. <laughs> mostly true. Now that when most humans, when they hear working a hundred hours per week, don't raise their hand and say, sign me up. But I, to me, that's fascinating. That's an incredible education and it's an incredible amount of uh, work ethic. And so that, how long did you stay with Bank of America being thriving? I was thriving in was that world. Little- yeah, so I was a little over three years. And then I, I moved down to a, a big hedge fund in, in Miami, actually, called Bayview and ran capital markets there for about six years, six, seven years. Just because this comes up a lot, and I don't think I've asked this question, as with a hedge fund, what is the major focus on the hedge fund space with Bayview? What is the value that's being created and who is that really available for, uh, the hedge sure. funds? Yeah, it's funny. Hedge fund is a catch-all term and I I tend to use it, uh, you know, when we're not getting into super detail because so many of them are different. They have different strategies, different focuses, really in essence, like what a hedge fund really is. It's a private pool of capital that is used to go out and frankly, you know, try to make more, (laughs) take money to make more money. And and that's about it. Like hedge funds started as being in, in literal terms, instead of only taking long positions in stocks, they could take short and long positions. So they were hedged and that's actually where the term came from. But then it evolved to being just like any private type pool of capital that could go out and do any kind of investment activity that it wanted to do. And where Bay- Bayview was privately owned by uh, a few partners and it focused heavily on the commercial and residential mortgage space, but also had alternative investments in hospitality. So hotels, cruise ships, things like that. And in many other, what I'll call little kind of side, anything that, that was interesting. That's the thing about a hedge fund is they don't have a lot of rules usually about where they can pool their capital. We were doing a lot of securities issuance out of the hedge fund. So all different kinds of exotic derivatives and and bonds and so on and so forth, really just capital structures where we could try to fund these investments as efficiently as possible. And that's really what my job was. My job was to raise capital in whatever the most efficient way was. As far as raising capital, who were your ideal clients that uh, Bayview served? So most of our investors were actually institutional. We had a lot of large pension plans. A lot of large private equity firms, a lot of insurance companies that all participated in our deals. Yeah, that makes sense. Any any family offices as well or not? There were a few, yeah. Like on the, honestly, on the riskier kind of assets, like if we were things that were higher return, we'll call them 20 plus percent expected type returns, we would get some of the smaller family offices in those because our capital structures tended to be top heavy in terms of risk, lower risk. And then as you got further down the stack, the risk ramped up and, and the, those tranches would be a lot smaller. In that space of Bank of America on that side, and then with Bayview on the hedge fund side, any days or nights of worry if things were going sideways or is everything always smooth sailing on that space? Yeah. Worry in, in, in my position, the worry always is, are we going to get this deal done at a price? 
where in the case of Bank of America, the client's going to be happy. In the case of Bayview, where the owners and investors are going to be happy. That was always my worry. So every deal, you're always trying to be as efficient as you can be and get the best possible outcome. I think with Bayview, I was there. I actually left Bayview right before the 08 crisis. As you have a crystal as, ball. Good job. Yes. <laughs> as, as things were, the cracks were starting to show there, I, I felt, oh, and Bayview as a firm actually did quite well right through the, the crisis. And it, it turns out was going to be just fine without me, even though I certainly felt I was, I was super important. But they did just fine without me there. But, but yeah, those were interesting. Being in the world of finance and capital markets in those days, in that 07, 08 timeframe was, it was pretty wild, no matter where you were. If you were in capital markets, you're, I was, I would say it was a lot of fun, but fun in a, we'll call it almost like a masochistic way. Oh, when you, it, it, for everyone listening, can you just do this? Quick real explanation when you talk about capital markets, what do you what do you mean by capital markets? Yeah, if we think about what are all the types of capital markets, right? The big the big categories are equity markets, for example. So like your publicly traded stock market, that's a capital market. In the bond market, you've got your investment grade bonds and your junk bonds and you've got private place. So Bonds are a capital market. Trading derivatives, those instruments, that's a capital market. The market for private companies like M&A, that's a capital market. So everything falling under kind of those types of categories falls under the overall umbrella of capital market. And M&A, what does M&A stand for? Mergers and acquisitions. Sometimes with a merger and acquisition, you're buying the equity of a company and sometimes you're buying the assets of the company. And so there's different structures. So a lot of times that all just goes under one big category of M&A. So you, and how long were you at Bayview for? I missed it. So Bayview, I was there for almost seven years. Seven yeah. years at Bayview. Okay. So then what was the next natural transition for you? A, a long vacation was the next natural transition. You went, went from 100 hours of Bank America, come on to Bayview. What did that, what was your Close, about the same, not much different. Yeah, different. You earned a long vacation then. I, I, I took a two-year vacation. So I was, I was actually a father of two young kids that I wasn't seeing a whole lot of. And I was like, you know what? I've done about 10 years now in what I would call hardcore institutional finance. And it's time for me to decide, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life or do I want to do something else? And I felt like it was a good time to reconnect with my family, a good time to figure out what maybe the next 10 or 15 years might look like, make some decisions, picked up a couple hobbies in the two years, learned to fly helicopters, which is only relevant, I think, to this conversation because I eventually started a helicopter leasing company. So that was a nice add on and then started to, I, I made the decision that I felt like if I could help it, I wanted to work for myself only moving forward if I could help it. So that's when I decided to go down the entrepreneurial uh, track. Which is a whole different animal, isn't it? So it uh, is. Yeah. Cause I always thought when I was engineering full time, always want to be a partner, always work my butt off. Always thought I understood all those pressures of being a business owner. But then when you go out on your own role being an entrepreneur, it's a whole new world of how do you meet payroll, how you meet all these commitments, how you pay all the vendors. It's a whole new animal. How do you create a consistent income stream when that income stream can be very inconsistent? 
And so it's just a whole new world. And when you went the entrepreneurial route, becoming an entrepreneur, did you, being solo, did you feel alone on an island all of a sudden? Here you are surrounded by pretty high performing, very high performers around you, right? A bunch of mm -hmm. peers that are pushing you and mentoring you, your bosses, right? All, all the different yep. leaders you, you had to report back to and all the clients you serve that you had strong commitments to. But I, I would assume you had a, a team to bounce ideas around with. And then now you go into the solo entrepreneurial world. And that's a mouthful. How Becoming a solo entrepreneur, did you initially feel alone on an island or did you have a good team immediately around you that you formed? No, I did. It was definitely a big change. And that's something we'll talk about later in terms of what I'm up to now. And one of the things that I, I ultimately realized, and, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through that. I think that's why you see so many entrepreneurs that try to get involved in these kind of mastermind groups and these connector groups, because a lot of them feel like there's really nobody in my company that I can really relate, relate to that's going to feel like that that's a peer-to-peer -peer type conversation. So having advisors or having friends or, or others that are in my boat is super valuable now. So yeah, it was a very different world. I think anyone who's listening that is an entrepreneur will, will totally relate to the fact that I, I found all of a sudden a lot of things that were amazingly better about it versus say being in a W2 you know, position. And also found a lot of things that were far more difficult and big and where you're you're looking around going, wait a minute, there's these five things to get done. And, and right now I'm the guy that has to do all five, right? I can't just, I can't just bang out an email and get these five things knocked out by, by the staff so much. Uh, yeah, it was interesting transition. Hey, those on the kind of listening that are on the fence, maybe thinking leaving their full-time engineering career or thinking of leaving some other type of employer they're working for, they enjoy it, but they think they're ready to take that next step and maybe can do something different and become an entrepreneur. What are, what were some of your learning experiences that could remove some of the, those hurdles? What would you advise someone? Hey, maybe just speak real quickly on the fun pieces of going out on your own. But also, if hindsight's everything, but what was some of the wisdom that you learned about how could you improve that moving forward? So it wasn't how, what could you share with people that to remove some of that pain, that, sure. the parts that weren't fun for you? Yeah, I guess a couple of things first come to mind. Look, the fun part is obviously having an idea, whether you're going to get into entrepreneurship through starting something from scratch, or you're going to acquire a business and you're going to get into it that way. Those are two different paths and th they have different challenges and different pros and cons. I, I think one thing I, I learned quickly and a little bit the hard way is it's a lot like when you go to build a house or do a major construction project where expect things to take twice as long and cost twice as much as you originally had planned. So from a budgeting standpoint, I think when you're, when you come from my world where being precise is not only expected, but it's almost critical. There's the temptation to try to be ultra precise when it comes to all the aspects around growing and managing and running a company. And you have to understand that a lot there, you, you probably can't be, so you just, you need to build a cushion, right? You need to just say, Hey. No matter how capable, how smart, how much I think I've got this locked in, I always have to build in the, well, what if I'm, what if I'm wrong factor, right? To some degree. And I think that just doing that alone, I think will save 
people a lot of headaches, especially if they're trying to look at it from a, a capital budgeting standpoint and understanding, okay, what does this look like? How much capital is needed for this? And what is my capital and maybe my cash cycle going to look like? And which are all things that if you're being paid a paycheck, you don't really, even at a senior level, even if you're involved at the highest levels, you're not as concerned about it as if the, the, the differences in budget versus actual affect your your bank account directly, right? It affects what you're able to, to earn from the business. So I think that's one thing that I learned for sure is that the temptation to be precise can should be overridden by the, I'd say, prudence of just building in contingencies. So I think it's really, what I found to be really just really fun is understanding that I was in control. If I thought of it, I could do it, right? Granted, I've got to figure out how to execute. But there's not a barrier there between my ideas and the things that I might think are good for the business and putting them into action. I think a lot of times when I talk to people who are part of larger or even smaller or medium-sized companies, it, especially ones that are passionate, that they, they tend to be creative and tend to have a lot of ideas about, about how to do things better or grow or move into a different direction, they find that red tape and bureaucracy often keeps those things from happening. Right. And I think that is a lot of fun being able to just dream it and then put it into work action and there's nothing standing in your way. Oh, I think, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that's really well stated. And I, a few things I highlighted when you're talking about precise, my word was I wanted things perfect. And I literally have on my CRM when I do notes, everything's dictated and I've learned I don't speak as well, as I want to, right? I have a tendency, I don't enunciate. According to the dictation devices, I don't enunciate yeah. good enough. Well, not. Right. And I literally have as an excuse, just notes internally for me on different cases, progress over perfection. Please excuse any errors and grammar errors, et cetera, commas. This is done via dictation. And literally it's there for me every time I go to dictate and to let it go. These are just notes. I don't have to have everything perfect. And you talked about, I wrote safety factor, use a different term, but I remember when I was leaving engineering full-time as a, a professional engineer in the civil discipline, always will maintain those licenses because boy, do I love engineering, designing and creating. It's just going to help people when it came to finances and money. I was literally, had, I lived and died and still do in many ways with spreadsheets. And I think it's very valuable budget-wise, plan on things being a lot more expensive and revenue being a lot less, we have a tendency to, to reverse it. So I literally created a spreadsheet and my wife, my ultimate business partner, to make sure I'm not crazy, uh, I said, hey, worst case scenario, based upon everything we have liquid, if I didn't create a cent, we would survive at least a year, right? Now, then look at this. If we just made a tenth of, not even like 5%, we'll last this amount of years. And if we do this, then we, we, we it's infinite. So that was like my logic of making an emotion, literally using a spreadsheet and the most empiric, all this evidence so I can make an emotional decision at the end, right? right. And make that <laughs> jump. And my wife saying, I believe in you. Go get them. The ideas piece I thought was really fascinating too. I remember over a decade ago, I said, I can't have this broker dealer relationship because all these ideas that I had, what I wanted to share with the community, free workshops, just things that can empower people to do finances in a different way to play the game. Things I thought would be really fun and empowering. Nope, can't do that. Too risky. Nope, can't do that. Nope, can't do that. And is this really about protecting the investor and the client or maybe more about protecting the machine? 
And I thought removing the red tape and bureaucracy, I thought that was great. All good reasons of why to go out and be a solo entrepreneur and be alone on an island at first. So now you have incredible amount of experience what you've accomplished. Holy cow, 300 million worth of successfully executed, over 300 million on merger and acquisition on the sell side transactions. Pretty impressive. Over $50 billion executed on capital market transactions. Those are big numbers. What a fun ride to be a part of it. Yeah, it helps. Like I said, when you're working on big deals at a big company, it's good for the scoreboard for sure. But yeah, we were, we did plenty of multi-billion dollar deals at, at B of A and at Bayview. And, and now I work on much smaller transactions. And, and I would say if I were being objective, I find them probably even more rewarding at the end of the day. But yeah, that's, it's interesting when you do enough deals, especially I'll say in finance, capital markets, M&A, you put them all together. You start to learn the rhythms of, of how to get things done. And I think that's where the experience really comes into play. Because what I find interesting is whether it's a, a $4 billion deal or maybe it's a bond deal or maybe it's an M&A deal, there's always going to be points at which you have to figure out how to get through something or multiple somethings. And I think that's where, even aside from any sort of total transaction value, I think that's what the experience of all these types of opportunities has really given me. It's that understanding that, look, at the end of the day, we're still not in a world, although we're getting there, where maybe with AI, computers are just going to do deals with computers and then humans are never going to be involved. But I, but I have you, a hard time envisioning that world. But. Me too, but hopefully not in the, in, in the too near future. But whenever you have people involved, there's always going to be things that come up in, in these types of transactions and learning how to work with people and learning how to motivate, whether it's a client or an investor properly is where a lot of that really comes in handy. I think that's a great segue. I have to ask you about the, I want to talk to you about it. You notice that you really help out on brand building and, and I think this will be, I want to get to the brand building piece that you do. And sure. also, yeah, your passion for working with founders and owners so they can maximize their business, make it as valuable as possible. And so I definitely want to speak on, on that for the rest of the, of the episode, if we could. But the helicopter piece, I forever, I've always wanted to, I have a fair amount of clients that flew the big planes, the commercial airplanes, and it's just awesome, or served in the forces uh, for our military. And I just love learning all those experiences. And I love getting to ride on, on some of the planes. It's awesome. I was like, man, I really would love to become a pilot just for the freedom and flexibility of getting... Say, I just want to jump in Reno and get down to Vegas. Now, it's not mm -hmm. cheaper to get have your own plane. It's not cheaper to go do that, but you get to do it in many ways as long as weather's cooperating on your own terms and you don't have to go through the pre-check. It's just a different experience, right? And mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? Even better is talking to a helicopter pilot that I represented for a while. That game seems even more fun because now you can be flying around, not always spotting every place that is a good landing area, you can pretty much land that helicopter any way you want. And right. which is really neat. You might not get there as fast, but everything is open for you to land on. So I was just curious, what attracted you to being a pilot? And why did you go the helicopter route? Because there's a whole bunch of reasons with physics of why a helicopter really should not fly. <laughs> but what That's attracted right. you from an airplane 
to a helicopter. That's interesting. Oh, actually, well, why do you want to be a pilot? Uh, that's interesting to me. And then why the helicopter piece and then the leasing things really fascinating. Again, very big thinking. Yeah, I think I was crazy when you're in that world of high pressure, high dollar finance for almost 10 years, like there's an adrenaline component to that. And you, even if you don't want to be, you almost become a little bit of a, of an adrenaline junkie, I think. And so I was sitting there and I had left that world and I had, I had been going to the, I lived down in Miami and stuff. So going to the beach a lot, working out a lot, got in good shape and just like, all right, get a little bored, get a little tired. Like, okay, what do I, and I'm looking for something that's going to get me, get that adrenaline, I think hit. And I, I was like, all right, I feel like I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to go the skydive route and just go get certified and then just start jumping. Like I had been sky, I'd gone skydiving a few times and loved it. Or I was going to go and, and fly helicopters. And I just, I always was fascinated by helicopters. It's weird. I never, I never had a desire to actually be a fixed wing pilot. I just never did. But there was something about helicopters that just fascinated me, the physics. And I knew it was a lot more complicated. It was from a mental exercise perspective. I knew it would be very challenging. So that's what drew me. And then I went and my first helicopter ride ever was actually in Vegas. I went from, flew from the strip. This was just on a little tour and flew over the Hoover Dam and landed in the Grand Canyon. Oh, and I was, I was like, all right, this is it for sure. So then I, I went and signed up at a flight school and was in with a bunch of ex-military guys who were on their GI bills who wanted to become commercial pilots. And a couple of them ended up being my instructors, became good friends with them. And it was awesome, man. I mean, it was everything I wanted it to be. It was challenging. It was fun. And once I learned and, and got my license, then you could do all of that fun stuff that you mentioned. So you could go and land on the top of a building if you wanted, go hang out, have lunch. Like there's a couple spots down in the Keys. You could land and just hang and you're, go again, go have lunch. You could go down there and just buzz 10 feet off the water and just pretend it was Top Gun, but in a helicopter. It was fun. The only thing I regret, because I, I haven't flown in a little while, it's been a minute, but you don't get any mountain flying down there. And that's the one thing I have. I've done almost everything you can do in a helicopter at this point that's cool and interesting and challenging. And except for really hardcore mountain flying, like up and where the, the, the density altitude is, is super high. And with helicopters, that becomes you know very challenging. Even flying in and out of a, a downtown, which I did a, a number of times, you're getting a lot of structural turbulence, a lot of wind, like coming from different angles off the buildings. Mm -hmm. And we're flying, a lot of times we're flying two seaters with the doors off. So it's, and then you come around the corner, you got to watch out, you can get blown right out of the sky. But all of that, call it dangerous. I think it was just feeding my, my adrenaline need. So you liked it so much, you decided to essentially buy the company in the fact that, yeah, you created a heli, you have a helicopter leasing business still? I did, yeah. I don't anymore. No, I exited, but that started actually happenstance, unfortunately. So at the flight school that I was in, there was, luckily no one was hurt seriously, but one of their instructors rolled their instrument, one of their instrument trainers. And I had become friends with the owners of the school. And they're like, okay, yeah, we need a new ship. And they're like, normally we, we lease, we don't buy. And there was a couple of innovative things they wanted to try. We put it up again for anybody who's listening, who's an aviation person, this will make sense. But we put a, like a glass, essentially a glass, like an all digital cockpit, but in a two seater 
which no one had ever really done before. So we we're, we were just having, but I was like, all right, this sounds fun. So it made the numbers work. Acquire the ship and then you lease it out and you're leasing it out at an hourly rate. The flight school pays for and takes care of all the maintenance on the aircraft. And then anytime I wanted to, I could just come in and grab it and go fly. And then I started doing more and more of those and it was a fun little business. And then I moved back to North Carolina and all the, all my helicopters were in Florida. And so I was like, I feel like I don't want to, I want to exit this. I'm not going to be down there near the ships very much. Yeah. It's like trying to man, be a property manager for real estate in a state that you're not even close to. And this real estate moves. I, you made it. I don't know exactly what this term means. You said you rolled a helicopter. What does that mean? Like you literally and, and ultimately crashed it. Let's just put it that way. But it rolled. <laughs> this has, I, I, I love the tangents. I, and so thanks for going on that tangent with me. I have one last helicopter question because it really is so fascinating. And I was like, man, the only way I could justify this game is if I had planes or helicopters, if I'd have to have some form of leasing company to justify the kind of expense that's involved. But that's a whole new animal. And that would really distract me at this moment. But the, the, what do you feel is safer in an airplane or a helicopter? Oh, an airplane's way safer. You feel safer? safer. Yeah, yeah, much safer. A helicopter, it, it, look, even the best pilots, if if you're up in the air in a helicopter and you lose your engine, you have to do something called an auto rotation, like to the ground, which essentially that as you're going down, the air coming up is powering the main rotor Mm -hmm. and it all works out fine when you're practicing. But in real life, those things are very tricky to do. So it's, if you lose an engine up in the sky, you're probably going to get some bumps and bruises in a helicopter. Whereas an airplane, you can glide to safety much, much easier. Yeah, no, that's uh, thanks for sharing that. Cause that was, kind of, I don't have any experience on it. So I just imagine this stuff. I'm like, Hey, I could just auto rotate. Therefore I'm safer. But <laughs> yeah, again, it, it works great when you're doing when you're doing a drill and and everyone, every, all the elements are in your control. He's always fired the throttle back on if things get dicey. But yeah, if you look at the history of, of helicopter crashes, you'll see that most of them on a percentage basis don't end well. Well, thanks. That's, that's good to know. And I'm not going to let my wife listen to this episode now. I don't. don't when do I that. bring up helicopters. With our reigning time together, thank you so much for coming on. Let's talk about what you're doing to help people. Branding's interesting. You're talking about AI and then also working with humans, right? Working with people. The way I understand it, and I'll emphasize I'm a marketing moron, but the way I understand branding is that's all about human connection. Now, of course, I say that and I love my logo for the engineer finance. I love Joey the T-Rex and the history behind that, where that came from. And that's my human connection with people. But that's the way I understand brand building is it's not just a fancy logo it's about how you connect with your ideal clients. Is that a fair way to describe brand building or, or how would you explain it? Yeah. And, and I'll, even though like most of our work I'd say over the last few years has been in consumer products. And so if I think about branding in that context, it's really no different than branding in any other context, but to put it in, in kind of that world, it's really about ultimately what is the connection that you have with the consumer? What is it that when the consumer about your company, what are those things that come to mind ultimately to that uh, consumer about your brand? And you might have a, a, a brand in food and beverage, or you might have a brand in apparel, or you might have a brand in healthcare and say like health and wellness. And, but ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to send a message to the world and you're trying to have consumers view what you do 
in a certain context. So what is that? And, and ultimately it tends to be something that can be described in the relatively few words, right? You're not looking for them to, branding isn't about here are my products. Like branding is about what kind of emotions does what you do evoke from the consumer at the end of the day. So what is your DNA? What are you all about really? And what, or more importantly, making sure that the consumer is getting the message you're trying to send, right? So it's really about that. It's about who we are, what do we stand for, and how do we want consumers to think of us and what we do. And you can do that across a service business, a software business, consumer products business. It's all the same. That's how I would, that's how I would describe it. And I think whenever we work with business owners on that part of what they're doing is we, we ask them those questions, right? Just those probing kind of questions, which is what do you, what do you think your company is all about? What do you think you guys do? What do you think the consumers think you do? When you see, when they see your logo or hear your name or see your products on a shelf or let's say on a, on Amazon or whatever, what is it that's going through their mind? Do you know, number one, and number two, is it what you want? And a lot of that, especially with founder owner, smaller companies, th there's a direct connection to that person and what's important. And so that's one of the things that I love about working with founder owners is there's such a personal connection to the business with usually one or two or three people tops. But, but yeah, that's how I would talk about brand. Brand is more of a feeling and an emotion and a message. Yeah, I think that's really well stated. Now at GW Partners, you're a founding partner. Your whole passion now is helping founders and owners to like literally just get everything you can, achieve their maximum potential with their business. Who are your ideal clients? Who do you serve right now? Yeah. So we focus again, very much on that founder owner world. So our ideal clients are going to be a business that probably has somewhere between, let's say 5 million and 50 million of revenue on an annual basis. That's the world we play in. We we call that the lower middle market. People who throw that term around have different, we'll call them dividing lines between lower middle and small business. But and we focus a lot of our time, most of our time in that consumer products type world. We work with a lot of e-commerce dominant businesses, but also plenty of businesses that are pure omni-channel. So they're in retailers, they're online, they're international, they're all over. But yeah. That, that's who we tend to spend most time with. And so when you say products, literally like what type of products, like software products, toys, vehicles? Yeah. Honestly, almost any category we have worked in and ultimately will spend time in. So we do a lot in juvenile. That's an area we spend a lot of time in. We spend a lot of time in beauty and health and wellness. Juvenile, I include baby and toy. We spend a lot of time in apparel. For sure. But if you look at our, even our little sort of history here over six, seven years, there's not many product categories that we haven't, that we haven't worked in, but it, they, they tend to be products, businesses, physical products, consumer packaged, good type products. We've definitely done some work in software and services, but I'd say 90% is CPG type product. CPG consumer oh, packaged good. goods. Oh, packaged yeah, goods. Okay. Yeah. Now, are you, do you get in a deep dive? What are the areas you come in? Like someone uh, reaches out, they do. Now you say revenue, you're talking about gross revenue. All right. Five to 50 million a year in gross revenue. Uh, what are you typically looking at? Someone reaches out to you and say, Hey, what can you do to improve our business? What are the things that 
what are the things you're looking at when you bring sure. on a, a, a new client? Yeah, what we do is we tend to work with founder owners who, who would like build a path ultimately to an exit within the next two years, give or take, right? And so what we do is we come in and we assess the business and we say, okay, let's look at every function within the company. Let's look at finance. Let's look at ops. Let's look at supply chain. Let's look at marketing. Let's look at HR. Let's, we go through and literally assess every single aspect of the company. And we assess it in the context of, okay, your goal is X. Sometimes that goal is expressed in terms of time and valuation. Sometimes that goal or those goals are expressed in other ways, but we look at, at where the business is today, assess it and essentially say, all right, in order to reach these goals, this is a plan of attack that we think that the company needs to follow in order to get there. Right. And part of where we are incredibly helpful is we've sold a lot of companies. We've been through a lot of processes like that. And we, we say we have the answers to the test a little bit. Right. So we can look at it from an acquirer's point of view and say, look, I'm going to tell you all the things about your business that I don't like. Right. I'm going to pretend I'm an acquirer. And here's the deal. We're going to go make them all much better so that they're not on that list anymore. And in the meantime, you're going to build a, a much more efficient, much more strategically valuable company, right? So it's really being very intentional about how to execute on an ultimate vision, right? And get to that place where, again, typically when we're working with them, they're thinking in that two year, maybe a little less, maybe a little more type of time frame. Now, I like how you said answers to the test because I joke about this all the time. A test is easy when you know the answers. And so it's just getting the answers. And then now people, the two-year type or less exit strategy, are you, or is your firm a business broker? In essence, yeah, we're an M&A advisor. Think about us more like a, a middle market investment bank in terms of the way we approach the world. We're going to, a business broker tends to do their intermediary work on a very passive basis. So mm -hmm. they, the way that they go about their business is very different from how we go about our business as it relates to that portion of our work that is involved in actually being the intermediary in a sale. There's a lot of elements that are, are quite a bit more active, but I think that's the real difference. You said, what's an M&A advisor, investment banker do versus say, what does a business broker do? Mm -hmm. And, and it starts with versus passive. So we, we certainly don't put ourselves in that business broker category for that reason. Even though a lot of what we do is very similar from the standpoint of we're an intermediary in a sale transaction. So is that, what does that look like? Someone says, Hey, this is what we want to maximize our potential here. We're, we're we want a two-year path so that this business acquired, that's part of our exit strategy. Your team comes on. Is that like a, a typical hourly consulting fee? Is that, hey, here's the commitment over the next two years. We're going to come at this side here uh, on this type of, I don't want to say cost, but it, there is mm -hmm. a cost yeah. to, to, to bring on. But then we also, is it also involved like, hey, because you have such an invested interest in their success, is there also something on the back end? Hey, you're going to have this type of commitment to pay us for our time here. But we really have an invested interest in your success. So when we go to sell this off on the acquisition, someone else wants to acquire you, we get this on the back end. 
Is it so you have it that way? So you get paid on your time to improve their company, but also get paid on making it happen? Yeah, you're very close. So okay. a couple of nuances that, that I'll try to be succinct about is we tend, we work in a phased process and anyone okay. who goes to our website can see this in more detail. So I won't just go crazy on the detail, but essentially when you think about the approach, the first part is diagnosing, right? So first we're diagnosed, then we're building a plan because we've now diagnosed the company and we've assessed it. Now yep. we're building the plan with the founder and then we're there. And one of the things that makes us very unique is that we're actually help executing on, uh, the plan as well. So we're hands and feet in a lot of different areas as this execution is really happening. Then what tends to happen is you go into a bit of a maintenance type period where a lot of that upfront work and a lot of the investment is just paying off and getting up when you're getting that momentum, the flywheel is kicking in. And then it's about when is it going to make sense now that we've executed on our plan to ultimately go and, and sell, right? And so during those first phases, um, it's very much a consulting type model where there's going to be, depending on scope, a consulting fee on a monthly basis. But here's what's interesting. One is we always want clients to feel like they're, they're flexible and they can, they're not in jail or locked into anything they don't necessarily want to be in. Anybody who wants to stop working with us at any point can. Right. We're, we're so confident in our, our kind of abilities. We're not really worried about that. And at the very end is exactly what you alluded to, which is we take the company through a sale process and there's a success fee, which is a percentage of the sale transaction value, which is very typical for an intermediary. Now, but the trick is anything you've paid us along the way for those consulting services, gets credited towards that success fee. I was wondering if you're going there and that's awesome. That's awesome. It gives that, it gives a lot. It really, we put our money where our mouth is, but more importantly, yeah. the founder just really feels comfortable to look, these guys are with me here in the foxhole, locked arms. We, they really are a strategic partner with me. Yeah. I think that's, that is awesome. That is a great process. And yeah, on your website, I guess if I just clicked our process button, that would have answered the question, but I'm glad, but no. yeah, no, that was great. Jason, you've been a wonderful guest. I love these type of conversations and I'm so grateful that you came on to the podcast. And what is the best way for a business owner or anyone listening that wants to maximize the value of their business and has an exit and wants a really good exit strategy in the next two years? Anyone who just wants to learn more about your company and you anyway, what is the, what, and we'll have everything in the show notes. So what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, you can go to our website. It's actually www.gw.partners. So it's a dot .partners site. So don't put .com at the end of it. And, or you can reach me at jason.partners. Those are the two best ways. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Anything uh, you want to add to this episode, to our conversation that I might've missed? No, just, I would say, again, if you're an owner, if you're an entrepreneur, I always love to just, I just love to talk to business owners, love to talk to entrepreneurs hear about their story, hear what they're going through, try to be of help where we can. Even if somebody feels like, hey, you know what, this just doesn't feel like it's really for me right now, just reach out anyway, because I think, again, we love to have good conversations. And, and if nothing else, we love to be of service and try to put people in touch with people we know that might actually help them. It's we do this, of course, as a profession. It's not a charity, but at the same time, we could be doing a lot of different things and we do this because we like it. Jason, thank you for coming on. 
uh, great conversation. I wish you the best. I wish all the clients you represent the best and awesome conversation. To everyone uh, who listens and supports the Engineer Finance Podcast, thank you so much. I love doing these episodes. I want to keep doing this every single week, forever. And if anyone has any ideas or topics they'd like me to explore or bring on some other guests for great conversations like this one with Jason, please let me know. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for everyone listens and supports the show. Look forward to next week. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. The content is intended for United States audiences only. Opinions expressed are as of the date of this publication, and such opinions are subject to change. Green Financial and Insurance Services Limited, Green, is not responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other claimed losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Green makes no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Forecasts are not a reliable indicator of future results. Investors should be aware of the risks associated with investing. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of capital. Investors should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile. Consult with a qualified financial advisor as necessary before making any investment decisions. Thank you for listening to the Engineer of Finance podcast with Ken Green. 